Zechariah chapter 9. This is the ninth lesson. In the past, uh, or in the past part of the books, we find a lot of the prophecies. We find a lot of prophecies concerning Messiah, uh, messianic prophecies. A large portion of these last few chapters are devoted to that. The style of writing from chapter 8 to chapter 9 changes. And, and uh, one of the reasons that people suggest that it changes is because there may have been a, a little time difference between the end of chapter 8 and the uh, beginning of chapter 9. A lot of commentators that you'll read will actually kind of separate it into first and second Zechariah. I'm not sure that there's any real reason to do that. I know that uh, there are several places in the latter half of the book of Zechariah that are quoted in the New Testament, and they are still elevated to the level of Scripture, and they're put there for the reason that God wanted them to be put there. But you'll see as we go through this, uh, there's a lot of prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, a lot of things that we're going to find. There's two burdens or two oracles or messages that Zechariah is going to focus on mainly as we get to these last few chapters. And uh, that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight is the first one. Uh, we're going to see some, uh, well, Jesus Christ as Messiah. He's going to be lifted up and exalted as a humble king, a loving shepherd, a mighty warrior, gracious savior, a righteous ruler, and ultimately king and priest, all rolled up as one. And we're going to see a lot of different things with that. And, and a lot of these prophecies, as we go through them, especially when we get to this point, uh, as you read different commentaries, as you read different uh, books on it, you may find some differences. You may find some discrepancies or uh, some people look at it in a very different way. It's really not unlike the book of Revelation. As we read through the book of Revelation and study it, a lot of times we'll find that different people interpret things very different. And that's why we have to rightly divide the Word of God. We have to get into it and study it. But more than anything, we just want to pray the Holy Spirit will lead us into the all truth and, and to reveal to us what He wants us to know and enlighten to us the truth of the Scripture. And that's ultimately, at the end of the day, what we really want to do with everything is make sure that we're understanding it in the manner in which God wants us to understand it. You know, it, uh, when we read the Bible or when we study the question is not, what does the Bible say to me? But the question is, what does the Bible say? You know, when we ask what it says to me, we're bringing our situation, we're bringing our desires into it with it. But when we look at the Bible with the intent to just find out what the Bible says, then we start to see it a little bit different. We're not filtering it through our desires. We're not filtering through our wants, but we're just looking at it simply for what God has made the statement. So some things may be left a little bit ambiguous, uh, we may not see it all that clear, but at the same time, what we do want to touch it and look at it and see uh, what we think that it's uh, what it's th we think it's saying, and uh, try to apply that to the scriptures. So uh, tonight, instead of reading all through it, I'll ask you to just kind of read it on your own, since we we're going to try to couple a, uh, cover a couple of chapters. But I do want to just point out certain verses, and I hope that you, uh, during the study, went through it and looked at it. So the first burden we see. Uh, preparing the way is there's an allegory or a picture painted here of the march of Alexander the Great. Remember, as we talk in prophecy, uh, the Grecian Empire is the only one that we don't have historical record of in the Bible of their occupation. Now, we have prophecies concerning the Grecian Empire. We have prophecies concerning Alexander the Great uh, in the Bible, uh, Daniel chapter 7 uh, painted him as the winged leopard. Daniel chapter 8 painted him as the fighting he-goat. You may remember that from when Brother Daniel was here doing his prophecy conference. But there's no actual 
uh, recorded scripture of when the Grecians were in power. So you have the, the Assyrian uh, Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we end with the, the scripture record of the Old Testament. We have a 500-year jump into the New Testament. And then the Romans are already in power by the time we get to the New Testament. But keep in mind, there was this one other power that takes place. There's a lot of prophecies uh, in the scripture. We're going to see several of them tonight pointing to that Grecian Empire. I love the fact that prophecy uh, is so, well, so divinely um, spoken of God, and when we're, whenever we see prophecy, we can depend upon that prophecy to be 100% truth. We know that it's going to happen and take place. Now, this is not to say that God is, um, well, as some would say, that this is the way it's going to be, and God is going to force it to be that way. You know, there, it's, it's very, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to talk about prophecies, but still have the uh, individual free will. You know, we, we look at prophecy and we think, well, if God ordained it to be this way, then, then did they really have free will? Uh, yes, they did. They, they still had the ability to make their choice and do what they wanted to do, but just simply because God was able to tell what was going to happen didn't mean that he was forcing people in order to act in that way. It's much, and I know this is uh, where the, or the analogy breaks down, but it's much like watching a movie or something, and we know what's going to happen at the end of the movie, but we, we're not actually making it happen just because we know about it. And I know that's very poor, a very poor analogy, but I don't want us to think that God is directing this to happen and making this happen and riding over people's free will. Now, there was prophecy concerning this, and we're going to see how all this added up to lead us to the time of Christ and to prepare the way for him. Uh, we're going to notice as we go through it that, that because of Alexander, because of the Grecian Empire, it brings in a government that allows for the Roman rule to come in and allows for the prophecies of Jesus Christ to be fulfilled. But at the same time, like I said, there was a lot of, um, a lot of prophecies concerning Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. So uh, the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9 is almost a roadmap of how Alexander, according to the book, uh, uh, Josephus, anybody know who Josephus was? Josephus was a Jewish historian. Uh, it's interesting reading. He was a, uh, he kept accounts or he made a record of a lot of Jewish events that we don't necessarily have uh, in our Bible, but because of Josephus and because of other writings like him, we can still see a history of what the Jewish people did. So Josephus wrote down the pathway that Alexander the Great took as he came into the Middle East and came into Israel. And this is what we see in the first eight, or eight verses of chapter 8 here. We see Alexander about 333 B.C. defeated the Persians and began his conquest into what he would consider world domination. As we read through in uh, uh, Hadarsh, uh, verse 1, is a region in the far north of Palestine. If you go on down in verse 1, Damascus was the capital of Syria. Uh, from here, the Grecian army would march down the coastline and, and take from it Tyre and Sidon all the way down to the south where Ashkenaz and Gaza was located at. Now, I didn't really give you a map. I drew one on the side of my Bible, but basically what it looks like if you were to start at the north side of Israel and just kind of come in and as you're coming in just go over to the coastline and slide down the coastline all the way down into where Gaza is at and we know if you watch the news you know where Gaza is at today but you'll see that but you'll, you'll see that as the uh, 
during this time. And the scripture tells us here that the army actually turned around and went back up into Jerusalem. So uh, some of those things that we see, that, so this is all very, um, very prophetic of the army of the Grecians coming in. So I just want to want you to put that down and kind of write that down. Uh, the southern areas, as we get down into verse 5 or so, the southern uh, part of the areas would see Alexander marching in. They, they would see that this is coming toward them. This is something that they would have seen and been very familiar with in times past. I mean, if you have an army that's coming into your land, and how many times now has Israel seen this? Right? We've seen it with Assyria. Even though Assyria was stopped because... Uh, at the border of the southern kingdom. Remember what happened to keep them from coming in? Anybody? It's when the angel of the Lord went out in one night and killed 185,000, and the Assyrian army turned around and went away. But then yet they saw the Babylonian Empire as it come in, the Mede-Persian, same way as it kind of started to encroach upon their territory. So the southern nations here in verse 5 are going to see this invasion taking place, and uh, are they going to be frightened for that. So after a, a siege on Gaza for about two months, uh, Alexander turns and heads towards Jerusalem. So he kind of heads back up going towards Jerusalem. As he come back down from Jerusalem, he actually went right by it and didn't, didn't bother it at the time. But as he got past it and got through Gaza, then he turned around and he went back into Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting thing that happened. And I, I know that sometimes this seems a little bit dry. I love the history aspect of it because... It shows us how we can be as human beings. How many of us reading the Bible can see clearly the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Or at least somewhat, right? We read through them and we say, well, certainly that was talking about Jesus. In fact, here in just a little bit, when we get over into chapter 9, we're going to see uh, where he comes riding in on a coat. How many remember that from the New Testament? Right? Palm Sunday. We celebrate that. We, we look at Jesus' triumphal entry, and we know that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. We have other prophecies in the Old Testament, and when we look at them, we realize that's talking about Jesus. And just so many prophecies concerning him that it's hard for us to imagine that when Jesus actually came on the scene in Israel, that the people that were in charge, especially the religious leaders, they failed to see him. Alexander the Great, on the other hand, as he turns toward Jerusalem and he goes in, the high priest says, well, I'm going to leave this to say, and this is uh, recorded, like I said, in Josephus, but the high priest said that he had a vision the night before Alexander was going to arrive at the city, that he had a, a vision that God wanted him to tell the people of Israel that the next day to ordain or ornament their city, to dress everything up, make it look nice, and everybody wear white. And when Alexander comes in, greet him with peace and greet him with joy. Well, so the high priest, he told the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, that this is what was going to happen. And the people, oddly enough, they followed his lead. And they did that. They, they opened the city up. They dressed it up for receiving of Alexander. And everybody dressed in white. And when Alexander rode in, they all cheered, and they, uh, they were glad to receive him in. The high priest took Alexander into the temple and shared with him the prophecies that he found reporting about the Grecian army. I think that's interesting. The high priest at this time, he goes through and he finds some of the more obscure prophecies, like in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, a few other places, not many other places, but a few other places, 
concerning the Grecian Empire and shows them to Alexander. So Alexander is very impressed with the city of Israel, so or, uh, city of Jerusalem, so he spares the city. And not only that, he goes to the temple and he makes sacrifices unto God. Now, if you read the Grecian uh, uh, Alexander's story, Alexander respected the Jewish people. In fact, he set up places uh, throughout the world for the uh, throughout his world where Jewish people could live somewhat unaffected. Now, they were still controlled by the Grecian government, but yet they could still be Jewish people. He wasn't trying to assimilate them like some of the other nations did in times past. But Alexander was very impressed, and he gave offerings and sacrifices uh, to Jehovah, to God at the temple. Now, um, this goes on down to tell us uh, that Jerusalem and Judah would be spared, and this is one of the reasons that this all happens. In fact, uh, you know, in verse 8, God is saying, I will encamp about my house, and, um, and they uh, shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in, the, in trust and in righteousness. So this is one way that God uh, is revealing himself and sparing the city because of the people's willingness to do this. So preparation is being made during all this time. When we look at the scripture, sometimes we have to understand or need, we need to understand that things are working together for something that's coming. Uh, for instance, anybody that looks at the world today knows that there's some bad things that are happening. But guess what? Bad things need to happen in order to rush in or usher in the end times. There's going to be wars. Is uh, Gog and Magog going to have a battle? According to the scripture, we know that they are. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do to stop it. We can pray for peace in uh, Israel, and we should pray for peace in Israel. But at the same time, the Bible tells us, and Jesus said, look for the signs. You know that this is going to happen. Matthew chapter 24, it lays it out for us what to look for. These things are going to take place. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he understood at the heart of man how man was going to be, and we could see them. But as we look through the scriptures, sometimes it's providing for something that God has already prophesied that was going to happen. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might, uh, might receive the adoption of sons. You know, so Jesus Christ, during that prophecy, it tells us when the fullness of time was come. So Jesus was ordained to be born at a particular time. There were certain things that had to be in order. There were certain events that had to take place in order to fulfill the prophecies. For instance, he had to be hung on a tree. He had to be crucified. We know that was the mode of execution that was prophesied in the Old Testament. We know that they had to split his garments up. They, they were going to gamble. They were going to cast lots for those. You know, so these are things that were going to take place. But don't think that the... Uh, the uh, death, burial, and resurrection was an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. You know, sometimes we have plan B in our life, right? We want to do this, but if it falls through, we're gonna, we'll do it this way. Uh, we have to do that all the time. But the prophecies of Jesus Christ was prophecies that were from the very beginning. In fact, uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter in verse 20, uh, speaking of Jesus, who was verily uh, foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And, of course, Revelation 13 and verse 8, uh, the last part of it tells us the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world in order to be our sacrifice. I feel like that when God created Adam and Eve, and as he was taking the dust of the earth and he was forming man, 
And as he breathed into the nostrils of man to breathe life into him, he knew at the moment that he was doing that, that one day Jesus Christ would have to go to the cross at Calvary to pay the price of sin for that man and for all men. And so it, it wasn't plan B. This was all working for plan A. This was all building up to do what God had ordained that was going to be done. So verse 9, I said verse 8. No, verse 9, I'm right. I've got my Bible turned to the wrong page there. And of course, we have this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughters of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having a salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a coat, the foal of an ass. And of course, we know this is prophecies of Jesus Christ. I wrote them down there, I think, in your outline, didn't know where they would be fulfilled. Matthew 21, did I put all those down? Sorry. Uh, but uh, all, all those are written down there for you, uh, where you can find that Jesus actually had his uh, trial for entry into Jerusalem. But I want to just take a moment, because as you read the first part of chapter 9, and then you get to this verse, there's a contrast that needs to be made. Something that we can look at that's very different from the way that Alexander came into the city and the way that Jesus Christ came in the city. And I want to just emphasize this once again. Who had the most prophecies concerning them alexander or jesus well jesus i mean as we read through the old testament like i said there's a handful of obscure prophecies about the grecian empire about alexander that the priest knew about but yet jesus christ the old testament is full of it in fact everything in the old testament was designed to point the nation of israel toward jesus christ according to galatians chapter 3 it was a schoolmaster to bring them to that place so everything from the law when jesus was walking uh, on to the on the road to emmaus it said that he opened up the scriptures and began to preach about himself starting at the writings of moses through the uh, through the law uh, through the law through the history through the prophets i mean he he started from the very beginning and preached jesus christ so there's a lot more prophecies concerning christ than there ever was concerning the Grecian Empire, but yet look at the contrast between the way the two entered into Jerusalem. First of all, um, like I said, they were both prophesied. Alexander was welcomed by the whole city, the high priest included. As I said, the high priest ordered that, or told the people to dress in white and to all gather out and to greet Alexander. Whereas Jesus, when he entered in, he was, he was welcomed by the common people and the children cried out. But where were the high priests during this time? They were trying to figure out how to kill him. They were away. They weren't there to welcome him into the city. Alexander came in riding his mighty steed. Uh, we mentioned that horse last week. Uh, Jaden came up to me at the end of service and told me the name of the horse. It's I still can't. I've got it written in front of me, and I can't say it. It's uh, B-U-C-E-P-H-A-L-U-S. Uh, I'm not even going to try. But Jaden came up to me and told me the name of it, and I, I it, just made me happy about that. Uh, but he came in war riding a war horse, something designed for battle. But yet Jesus, he enters into Jerusalem riding on the coat of a donkey. He was riding on an animal that was uh, meant to bring and show peace. And, of course, Alexander came in riding full of honor and pride. When Jesus came in, he came in in humility. Uh, Alexander came into the submissive will of the nation of Israel or to the, the people of Jerusalem. When Jesus Christ came in, he came into the rebellious hearts 
of the nation of the people of Jerusalem. Remember that after Jesus entered in, yes, it was only be a week later before the same people who was cheering Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, holy is the Lord God Almighty, are the same ones that were crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So it was the same people. So um, Alexander came into their submissive will where Jesus came in to their hardened hearts. Alexander came in and gave a sacrifice. Jesus came in to be a sacrifice. And those are just a few of the contrasts I wanted to make with that. But it's interesting to me that as you read chapter 9 of Zechariah, that as you're going down through, the first few verses are setting up the empire of Alexander and showing how it comes in to Israel. And then all of a sudden, we have this complete 180 where it tells us how Jesus entered into the city. So any questions or comments there? As we read on through, we start to see the Messiah's conquest or Jesus' conquest. Uh, verse 9 tells us that he's going to bring peace in. Uh, verse so, uh, 10 um, on through uh, verse 13. Make sure that I'm not getting ahead of myself here. You know, and we see between, oh, I think it is between uh, verse 9 and 10, basically the entire uh, church age is located in that because as we get into verse 10, we start to look at the messianic age, the, the millennial reign, when Jesus Christ comes back to reign again. Uh, so between verse 9 and 10 is where the church age is at. But during, uh, you know, there's going to be wars and battles at that time. But when we get into verse 10, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is going to come in and he's going to reign and he's going to conquer. He's going to uh, rule in peace. Verse 11 uh, it says, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have set forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Now, the reference that is being made there about the pit with no water is talking about a cistern, cistern, uh, where they would hold like a well or a reservoir. But what would happen in the Middle East, and you find other places in the scripture where they actually did this, uh, Joseph was one of them. Uh, when they would have a prisoner or somebody they wanted to keep captive, they would actually drop them into one of these that was dried out, and it was a good place to hold prisoners. So as we read verse 11, it's prophecy about the, the covenant, and he's going to pull them out of that place of bondage, out of that prison. He's going to reestablish them as we go on, we'll see. The Messiah, as he marches in, we start to see kind of the same thing. The verses show the greatness of God and how he's going to lead the nation of Israel into a victorious battle. And, uh, he's going to fight and cover them with his strength and his power. It's not going to be about their ability anymore or about their stamina or about their strength. It's going to be about the power of God that rests upon them. You know, one of the problems that drew the nation of Israel away was their reliance upon themselves instead of depending upon God. You know, God was there for them if they would just simply have depended upon him. But when they started to look to their own strength, their own power, their own ability, is when they were drawn away. Uh, here in just a moment, we'll make reference to Ezekiel chapter 16. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 16, it paints uh, Israel in the light of being a newborn baby. In fact, uh, it says that they were, as a baby, they were just cast aside, that the, it says the cord hadn't been cut. So basically, it was just cast off, you know, or the navel hadn't been cut. Uh, the umbilical cord hadn't been tied off properly. The blood hadn't been washed off of it. No one loved it, and just the people walked by it on the street. But when God walked by and he saw this infant, he saw uh, who she was, that he picked her up and he cleaned her up, and he ordained her with beautiful raiment and clothed her and cleaned her. And as she grew up, she became strong and beautiful. And her beauty started to take her away from 
the one who made her that way. And she started to depend upon her own self. And she turned to her own glory instead of to the glory of God. And that drew her away. And she started to depend upon that. And when she did, then God left her to her own devices. And what happened? Well, we see the exile period. We see where other armies came in that if God was in charge, he could have just simply stamped them out or kept them from coming in. But because they had rebelled, he said, have it your way. And he kept his conditional portions of that covenant where he promised in the covenant that if they wouldn't do it, then he would remove his protection from them. Uh, you know, the, the Lord uh, allowed these other armies to come in, these other nations to come in and to take over them. So uh, as we see this in this march, it's going to be about uh, God's ability. It gives reference here about uh, the flock of sheep. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who would take a flock of sheep into war with them? You know, and this is the way that the people of Israel has been mentioned. I mean, nobody would take sheep into battle, but yet as we go on into chapter 10, we're going to see where he turns those sheep into battle horses. He's going to take them and make them warriors. Now, you see kind of the similar, the same thing early on in the nation of Israel. You have a very weak nation uh, coming out of Egypt, a nation of slaves, a nation of people who have lived in bondage all their life. They didn't know about warfare. They come to the edge of the promised land, and as they get ready to go into the promised land, Joshua takes over, and by the time we get to the end of the book of Joshua, what do we see? We see a mighty fighting force. We see an army that's been uh, uh, raised up, a, a group of people who knew how to engage in warfare and combat. You know, so God is saying here once again that he is going to bring them to that place, that he is going to reestablish them as that army. Now, I want to ask a question here real quick. Concerning the promised land. I'm going to ask Brother David uh, not to say anything because I know me and him agree on this. But what is the uh, a picture of the promised land to Christians today? If, if I say going to the promised land, where are we going? That's what most people say, isn't it, Brother David? We, me and him have talked about this a lot. But the picture of the promised land is not a picture of heaven. It never has been a picture of heaven. Yes, we sing songs like I'm bound for the promised land and we, we equate it to being heaven. But the picture of the promised land in the Old Testament, when they got into the promised land, they were not in heaven. They were in the protection, they were in the provision, and they were in the presence of God. That is what the picture of the promised land was. It was in being in the will of God with the blessings of God resting upon you. Uh, there's a place that comes after the promised land in the Old Testament. Uh, when the saints died, they went to heaven or went to the, at the time, Abraham's bosom later on led by Christ into heaven. But nonetheless, the picture of the promised land was not necessarily a picture of heaven, but a picture of being in submissive obedience to the Lord and doing what God would have them to do. Well, this is the same promise that is coming up during this millennial reign. They are going to once again be in that promised land. That is not heaven, but it's that promise that God is going to give to the nation of Israel, and we're going to see them as he goes through. As we go over into chapter 10, we start to see the process of him strengthening the, uh, the nation. He starts out by what's one of the big problems that the nation of Israel had? A lack of leadership. You know, a lack of leadership in any situation or any organization or any group is very damaging. Uh, a lack of leader, well, I could get myself in trouble right there, couldn't I? I'm not going to. Just forget, forget I even said anything there. <laughs> but a lack of leadership 
can lead to a lot of problems. It can lead to destructions of entire nations. And certainly the nation of Israel had suffered from the lack of leaders. If you remember as we go through some of the leaders in the book of Kings, some of them were very wicked. We had a few good kings, but a lot of those were very wicked. And what happened because of their wickedness? The entire nation suffered, and they they uh, they ended up being in trouble. And as you read through, um, you know, chapter ten, we start to see that a lot of the leaders that the nation of Israel had were bad men. They were um, well, just they were not very good shepherds. They weren't, weren't good people of God. Uh, but nonetheless, he God was going to take those and turn those and, and uh, get rid of those and, and set himself up as. Uh, the head and the uh, leader of the nation of Israel. So as the prophecies continue, uh, you start to get into the march or to the results of his march in, that this land, once again, as we get into chapter uh, 10, is going to be a land that is abundant, a land that is full of, of things. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. Now, how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. Ask ye of the Lord uh, rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. So it's speaking about, once again, Ike in that promised time, that the land is going to produce. And we saw that last week in chapter 8 with some of those prophecies. It's going to provide the need that they have and give them the substance that they desire. They're going to have food to eat. They're going to have all those things that they need. Uh, verse 2 uh, tells us the folly of idols. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the div uh, diviners have uh, seen a lie, and they have told false dreams. They comforted it in vain. Therefore they, went, uh, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. You know, the Bible tells us without a vision, the people perish. And when you have a shepherd that is seeking counsel from the wrong things, there's no direction in their life. And the, the people perish, the people suffer. And because of a lack of leadership, well, he goes on to say that my anger was kindled against the shepherds. And I have punished the goats for the herds. Uh, 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 for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them his godly horse in the battle. So he basically... He is overthrowing or he is casting out those leaders that they have had that's been bad. And he's going to establish himself in that role of authority. Look at verse 4. I want to just camp out on that for a minute because that's interesting to me. There's a, this is one of those few verses, or one of those, not few verses, a lot of verses in the Bible like this. But this is one of those verses where you can look at just a few words. And there's a lot of substance in that. So Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 4. Out of him came forth the corner. Out of him the nail. Out of him the battle bow. Out of him ever oppressor together. What do you suppose he's talking about there? We're, we're speaking, these are all pointing towards Jesus Christ. Out of him come forth the corner. Well, what are we talking about the corner? This is probably the one that is most obvious to most of us if we talk about the corner. Anyone? The cornerstone, we're talking about that foundational stone that everything else is built upon. If you get the foundational stone right, then everything else will be right that's going around it. So if you have that squared point in the proper spot, everything else is right. So we see that out of him cometh forth the foundation. Amen? Then the second one, out of him the nail. Well, what's the nail? This is one that's a little bit more odd, a little bit different. 
you know, the structure of some of the housing that they would have, some of the buildings that they would have, would have to be tied together as much as it was nailed together. So there was nails that was stuck in the bottom of these buildings that when they would wrap the rope around it, they would have something to tie off to. It's much like a, um, what's the, um, the, on the boat dock, the, the chuck, or not the chuck, what's that called? Where they would tie the boats to it. Is it called a chuck? No, on the dock where they would tie it off to. But basically, that the cleat, the cleat on the dock where they would tie the boat off to. This is kind of what this nail was. It was a nail that would stick out of the side of the tabernacle or out of the side of buildings. And as they bound the boards together to build this house, they would take that nail and they, or that uh, rope and they would tie it off on that nail. So now all of a sudden, not only is he the cornerstone, but he is also the security, the uh, what's, what's holding it all together. So we see the cornerstone, the foundation. We see the nail, the uh, what's holding it together, the security. And then you see out of him is the battle bow. Well, what's the battle bow? Well, that's easy enough for us to figure out. It's the defender. It's God that's going to be the one that fights on our behalf. So he is our protector. He is the one that's keeping us safe. So we have uh, our foundation, our security, our defense. And then the last one here. Uh, out of him ever oppressor together. I like this one because it, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like what you think it would mean. It's, it's one of those words that we ought to bring back to our, our uh, vocabulary today. Do you know what the word oppressor means? How many knows that taxing is oppressing? April 15th, come and talk to me. I'll tell you that taxing can be oppressing. So the word that is used there is talking about taxing. And it goes on to say uh, the oppressor together, the word together, unity together. So the, the picture that's being painted here is the picture of a, well, who, who taxes? Who has the ability to tax? Uncle Sam, the government. So we see here that out of him shall come the who? The government. Isn't that what was promised in the Old Testament, that Christ would come and he would reign as our government? So in verse 4, we have these four pictures of the coming Messiah, the promise that he would be our foundation, our cornerstone, that he would be our security, that nail that everything ties to. He would be our battle bowl, the defense that we have, and he would be our ruler or our government through that oppressing together, the, the phrase that is used there in the original language. And I just thought that was a very neat that was used there, and I, I like that, so I, I, I just wanted to point that out for a little bit. So, as we go on through the rest of chapter 10, as I said, you're going to get a lot of it uh, the same way that you see in the, uh, in the 16th chapter of Ezekiel, how the land was of Cana, or as, actually if you turn over to Ezekiel 16, um, you'll see that she was born out of Cana. You know, Abraham, that's where she came from. Her mother was a Hittite. She was born with this umbilical cord that was not cut. She was not washed off. But the Lord came by, and he picks her up, and he brings her, lifts her up, and brings her out, and starts to establish her. And it starts to rebuild her for this time period. Well, the nation of Israel is going to be reestablished during that millennial reign. They're going to be reestablished during that time. Uh, it goes on to tell us that the people are going to be drawn back out, that they're going to, they're going to come back in uh, to the nation of Israel during that time from other places. In fact, if you read through it, it tells us that they're going to come in and they're not going to find places to stay. It's going to be so full. And, uh, you know, you look at Israel now, and like I've said for the past few weeks, that if you go over to Israel, you'll find people who have their doctorate that are working at convenience stores because 
There's just no jobs for them now to work as a doctor. The, the nation is starting to get crowded. Well, the same thing's going to happen as the millennial kingdom comes and people, the Jewish people's hearts are going to turn to the nation of Israel and want to go back home, that the people from all over, and even, as it says here, even from Assyria, are going to go back into Israel. When it says from Assyria, what's it referring to? Who did Assyria take captivity? The northern tribes, the ten lost tribes. You know, we talked about the lost tribes of Israel. So even out of those tribes, see, we don't have to know who we are in order for God to know who we are. You know, God knows who his people is. He knows who people are without us having to do the genealogy background. Now, I'm not going to try to say that I'm anything other than a mutt. That's all Kim and I are. Uh, we come from a long line of mutts. You, you look in our background, and you're going to find basically every nationality that other people didn't want around them, and they sent to Kentucky. That's, that's where we come from. It's not, it's not hard to tell why people didn't want us around. I'm teasing, but that, that, that's what we are. So we're, I, I don't have any delusions at all thinking that I'm Jewish, but there are still Jewish people out there that cannot trace their heritage back to, well, to any, any tribe. But yet, during that time, that there's going to be a desire for them to go back. And God knows who they are. The same way with the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. God knows who they are. And God will use them at that point in time, and he will bring them back. So, uh, one of the great lessons, I think, that we get from chapter 10, uh, well, from all of it, but from chapter 10 especially, is, you know, the message is no matter how bad that we have gotten, or how far away that we've got from God's will, that he is capable of restoring us and bringing us back to where he wants us to be. You know, we never get to a point so far away that God cannot restore us. You know, we may lose our witness. Anybody ever lost their witness with somebody before? Don't raise your hand. We may lose our testimony. Some of us have lost our testimony with certain people. We may lose some of those things, but no matter what we've done or where we go, we are not so far away from God that he can't bring us back to where he wants us to be and make us a people that is usable to him once again. So I just want to encourage us all tonight to realize that you know, we've all got a past, every one of us in here. Every one of us has something that we're not proud of, that we've done, something that we, we just think about from time to time, or maybe it sets in front of us on a daily basis. In fact, I wrote down in my prayer journal today as I was studying, you know, Lord, keep my sin ever present before me. Let me realize that I am one of the unrighteous people of this world that is only saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because once we start to think that we have arrived and that we are more righteous than others, then we start looking down upon people. But when we see people and we see the, the uh, uh, standard of Jesus Christ and then we see ourselves for what we truly are, then we realize that people are much closer to me and you than we are to Christ. Does that make sense? You know, so I, I just want us to all be encouraged tonight that no matter where we're at or what's going on, that God is still able to restore us and use us. And no matter what we've thought of in our life, that God is able to do that.